Welcome to another episode of the Restoration Today podcast. I want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, a network spanning all of the US and Canada, the Tomi Service Network. Consisting of members from multiple verticals, the Tomi Service Network provides members access to Steramist technology, which is a powerful disinfection technology designed to adapt to any job site. Members also received marketing materials, member discounts, networking opportunities, and more through a new desktop and mobile app. Learn more today by visiting Tomimist, that's T-O-M-I-M-I-S-T dot com, or by calling 800-525-1698. Hello there. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Today, I am very excited to be talking about hurricane season. We are recording this well ahead of hurricane season coming, and there are different levels of predictions that come out as we lead into it. But I had the pleasure of meeting and listening to Phil Klotzbach speak at um, various Elevate conference um, in February. So I was excited to bring him on the podcast today to talk about um, trends within the hurricane season and what they looked like last year, what they might look like in 2022. And there's also some changes going on with how hurricanes are going to be categorized and stuff like that. So Phil is a research scientist with the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State. Phil, thank you very much for joining me. I'm just going to toss it over to you and have you start by just introducing yourself a little bit and um, share your background with Colorado State and your work as a scientist. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Michelle. It was great, great meeting you in person um, not, not too long ago. And uh, yeah, as you're right, where you know hurricane season is fast approaching. So our group at Colorado State is best known for its uh, seasonal hurricane predictions. So we try to predict before the uh, peak of the hurricane season how active the hurricane season is going to be. And so um, these seasonal forecasts have actually been going on all the way back to 1984. Um, they were founded by. Um, um, who the, the gentleman who was my mentor, Dr. Bill Gray, um, who was a, um, just a fantastic scientist and a great mentor. He did he developed the seasonal forecast and then just made fundamental contributions to tropical cyclone, hurricane structure, genesis, intensity change. Um, and I had the, the benefit of or the benefit and pleasure of working with him for over 15 years um, while I was getting my PhD, and then I've continued to work with him until he passed away um, in 2016. Um, but certainly, um, as you mentioned, the hurricane season is, is fast approaching. Uh, we'll be putting out our first formal forecast on Thursday, April 7th, but certainly, at least as, as of this point, you know, it is looking like we could potentially be looking at the seventh above normal Atlantic hurricane season in a row. In a row. Okay. So when you're starting to see like that many in a row of above average, how does that kind of shift the average then? And you're like, all right, maybe this is the new average. Like, how do you guys take that into consideration over time? Yeah. So NOAA officially, um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the uh, the government's weather forecast office and climate, and they do oceanography too. Um, basically, they take, they use 30 year averages. So um, and they update that every 10 years. So it's a little bit convoluted, I think, to kind of grasp. But basically, from 2011 to 2020, they use a 1981 to 2010 average. And from um, 2021 to 2030, they'll use the 1991 to 2020 average. And so since the 1980s were very quiet and the, 19, or the 2010s were much more active, the average, the average hurricane season has actually gone up. Uh, from night from what it was until what it is now. However, the Atlantic tends to go through periods of about 25 to 40 years, characterized by many more storms, and then similar length periods characterized by many fewer. So, since 1995, the Atlantic's generally been the Atlantic Ocean's been warmer than normal. Warmer water provides more fuel for hurricanes, and it's been pretty busy. It's 1970 1994, the Atlantic 
was much colder and the overall hurricane seasons tend to be much, much quieter. But if you go back to the mid 20s to the late 1960s, the Atlantic was warmer again. And the Atlantic tended to be very busy. We had a lot of land flying hurricanes. And if we went back to the first part of the 20th century, it seemed like it was pretty quiet. And while the hurricane data gets dodgy going back into the late 19th century, that time period was extremely busy, uh, at least for US land flying hurricane activity. Uh, we don't really have very good data for the open ocean once you get back into the 1800s, just given the observations that we had at the time, but likely it was also very busy in the late 1800s. So, uh, but yes, as you've noted, since 95, it's been very busy. Um, and again, we could potentially be looking at the seventh above normal season in a row, but certainly obviously there's a lot that could change between now and the start of the season to June 1st. And when the season really, really picks up, which is in early August. So when are your different predictions coming out? You said like the first official report comes out April 7th and what are the other steps in there? Yeah, so we put out our first forecast April 7th, and then we'll update it in early June, early July, and early August. And some people say, you know, you can't do a forecast in August. You're, you know, you're already two months into the six-month season. And that's true, but the Atlantic hurricane season is extremely peaked. So while the season officially starts on June the 1st, it really doesn't ramp up until August. We get over 90% of our major hurricane activity. Those are category three, four, and five hurricanes, hurricanes with winds of 111 miles per hour or greater. Um, over 90% of those occur during August to October. And the reason that we care, we focus a lot on major hurricanes as well, even though they only make up about 20 to 25% of the storms that form in a particular year, they do over 80% of the damage. So um, while you can get damage from weaker storms in general, most of the damage does come from major hurricanes. Obviously the prime example of that from last year would be Hurricane Ida. We had about $80 billion in damage last year, um, and about 75 billion of that came just from Hurricane Ida. Okay, so what are some other trends and results you saw from hurricane season last year? Yeah, so last year was another very, uh, was another busy hurricane season. We had 21 named storms last year, which is the third most on record, trailing only 2020, which had 30, and then 2005, which had 28. So another very busy season from the number of storms. Uh, One thing I do like to point out though with the number of storms is that we are naming more weak, short-lived storms now than we used to. And that's just due to improvements in observational capabilities. We have better satellites, we have better detection techniques. And so these are real storms, but they're just storms that we just didn't necessarily have known existed, say, 20 to 30 years ago. So it's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison when you're looking at the num- just a number of storms. So we usually advocate looking at, say, the number of hurricanes, Um, the number of major hurricanes, which tends to be more robust going back in time. Another metric that we look at a lot is this accumulated cyclone energy metric. And it's kind of a geeky metric, but it accounts for the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of storms. So a storm, for example, like Hurricane Irma in 2017, which was a very, very long-lived major hurricane, generates a tremendous amount of ACE Whereas a weak, short-lived storm, say like last year, a lot of the storms last year were very weak and short-lived. Those storms generate very little ace. A storm like Ida, which was obviously very intense, but was fairly short-lived as a major hurricane, generates some ace, but not as much as say a long-lived major hurricane. We had a couple of those out in the open Atlantic last year, most notable being Hurricane Sam, which thankfully didn't really cause any significant impacts, but was a major hurricane uh, for about a week. All right. So based on your team's research so far, what do you, what are some of your early forecasts for 2022? Yeah. So what we look at when we look at hurricane seasons and we try to do our predictions is we use a lot 
Um, so basically, hurricane seasons are not random. They respond to the large-scale atmosphere ocean circulation. Um, hurricanes are not just random events popping up randomly. So in general, when conditions overall are more conducive, you're going to get more hurricanes in a, in a particular ocean basin, whether it's the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean, even the Indian Ocean. Um, and so for the Atlantic, a couple of the big factors that we monitor, one is obviously ocean water temperatures in the Atlantic. When those water temperatures are warmer than normal, that tends to provide more fuel um, for hurricanes since hurricanes live off of that warm ocean water. Another parameter that we look at very closely is we monitor what's going on in the eastern and central tropical Pacific Ocean, a phenomenon known as El Nino. Um, when you have El Nino, which is warmer water in the tropical eastern and central Pacific, why we care about that, even though we're focusing on hurricanes in the Atlantic, is because when those waters are warmer than normal, that in the Pacific Ocean, it tends to increase the strength of winds high up in the atmosphere, 20 to 30,000 feet out of the west. Normally in the Atlantic, your low-level winds, winds near the surface, in the tropical Atlantic, blow out of the east. So if we think about this in a vertical cross-section, you have low-level winds blowing out of the east, we have upper level winds blowing out of the west. And so you have a shearing that develops and that tends to tear apart, disrupt the hurricane circulation and tends to tear it apart. So right now we have La Nina. La Nina is colder water in the tropical Pacific. It's associated with less vertical shear in the Atlantic and it tends to lead to a more active overall hurricane season. Now this is February. Obviously a lot can change between February and June 1st and especially August and through October. And that's one of the big questions that we're going to be monitoring going forward. Um, the latest outlook from NOAA gives only a 17% chance of El Nino for August through October. Um, so that's fairly low, but certainly, you know, it's still about a one in six chance that we could have El Nino. If we were to have El Nino, it would likely lead to a quieter overall Atlantic season. Right now, the tropical Atlantic is also much warmer than normal, but obviously that can also change between now and the peak of the season. So those are a couple of things that we're going to be monitoring. Um, March is actually a really important month in terms of um, if you're going to transition, chart transitioning from La Nina to El Nino, often you will see some big changes during the month of March. So we're gonna be very closely monitoring that. Also, the modeling techniques that we use depend a lot on March data. So we'll know, have a lot more to say once we get through the month of March. Um, and obviously, we'll have our first full, full forecast um, coming out in just a few weeks in early April. How much do you find that like the property damage restoration industry and care, insurance carriers and stuff like that rely on this data to know what's coming and under everything? How, how, do, how do they connect with this data and how are they using it to forecast? Yeah, so when it comes to insurance, you know, a lot of it is, you know, we can't, even if we have a perfect seasonal forecast, we can't say, you know, is a storm, obviously the big question is, you know, is a storm going to make landfall and cause damage? Because if you have, you can have a year like 2010, where we had 12 hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin, not one of them hit the U.S. So while it was an extremely busy year and it was a very good seasonal forecast by our group, you know, from a damage perspective, it wasn't that big of a deal because nothing really happens from a damage perspective. But in general, more active seasons do have more landfalling hurricanes. If you were to say, take the five or 10 years where we forecast most hur hurricanes to occur in the basin, you will see ratios about three to one in terms of the landfalling hurricane. So while not necessarily on an individual year to year basis, 
you'll see a, a really strong relationship. When you start looking at multiple active seasons in a row, um, you will tend to see obviously a lot more landfalls than in quiet seasons. But obviously the example, one thing we always say is, you know, it only takes one to make it an active season for you. But in general, more active seasons do have more landfall and hurricanes, simply just due to the fact that there's more storms out in the Atlantic, the odds are greater just that one of those or one or two of those are going to slip through and manage to come in and make landfall. And certainly the last um, six years have been above normal. And obviously we've seen a lot of high impact landfall and hurricanes in the United States, as well as certainly impacting very significantly the Caribbean and Central America as well. Okay. So I know this next question, a lot of it's going to be over my head, but I'm curious what kind of technology your department uses for the forecasting and for all the studying and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, kind of the, the way that these forecasts got started was uh, Dr. Gray was kind of a fount of knowledge. He was basically had like Wikipedia in his brain. And so, you know, prior to the early 1980s, no one was making seasonal forecasts of hurricane seasons. So there was just basically the hurricane center director came out and even was quoted as saying, there's no way to know how active the season is going to be. And so Dr. Gray was teaching a tropical meteorology class and said, you know, hey, when we, when we have El Nino conditions in the Pacific Ocean that we tend to not have as many hurricanes in the Atlantic. And so what he was, he was really big into empiricism where he basically observed these relationships and then try to go out and understand the, basically the physics of why that relationship was there. Um, and so a lot of these predictors that we use are based on historical data. And so back in the early 1980s, you had to basically like call people and then they would basically, you know, either mail you data, fax you data once you got into the early 90s it was it was it was a lot of just grueling data just acquisition and then analysis a lot of that was even by hand uh, whereas now uh, we have a lot of these nice globally gridded data sets that are all online where you can basically look and say you know there's data sets that have data every six hours going back 100 150 years with winds temperatures pressures um, water temperatures all these different things um, and obviously there's challenges because, you know, the data is there, but as you go back in time, the data gets less certain because we had fewer observations. Since we've had good satellites, that helps a lot. But if you go back prior to when we had satellites, you're dealing with weather observations from ships, from land stations, and there's just fewer and fewer of them. There's huge areas where there's not much of any data. Trying to get data high up in the atmosphere gets really, really hard. Um, so we... We use a lot of this historical data to come up with our forecasts. A lot of our models are based on data since the late 1970s where we had decent satellites. Um, we also look at older data, um, going back further, just realizing that both the hurricane data gets less certain as well as the observational data. Um, one thing that we are using now that, that really Dr. Gray couldn't have used in the early 1980s is we're using forecasts from, so we use historical data and basically, so with an April forecast, we use historical data up through March and look and see how basically if February and March conditions, basically what do February and March conditions prior to active hurricane seasons look okay. like? And what do inactive seasons look like? And basically using those kinds of relationships, but we can also use climate models to forecast um, what the, the models will forecast and say, here's what, here's what I think the weather's gonna, or the climate's gonna look like in August through October. Um, and, you know, in March, that forecast has some skill. It's not perfect. It's better than it was 10, 20 years ago, but there's still some uncertainty, but we can use that as well. So what we use is we use a climate model to forecast what the environment's going to look like during the hurricane season. And then if that forecast is correct, how does that relate to an above average season? So we kind of have a blend of uh, statistical approaches. And then we also use basically a hybrid approach where we use a climate model to forecast 
the water temperatures, the pressures, the shear, and then we say, okay, if that model's correct, how does that then relate to the hurricane seasonal activity? So hopefully that will continue to lead to, um, to more skillful forecasts uh, with time. And obviously more and better historical data will help us as well as better climate models forecasting. If we can get a good forecast of El Nino, that helps a lot. And that's still not, not, not a slam dunk guarantee that you're gonna get good forecasts of El Nino. So um, there are challenges, but you know, these seasonal forecasts have actually improved. And while our group at CSU is the longest running forecast, we actually have developed a website in partnership with the Barcelona Supercomputing Center where we have about, I think that last I counted, there were 25 different groups submitting seasonal forecasts. So these include government agencies, universities like ourselves, and then private sector weather companies. Um, so there's a lot of people doing these forecasts using a variety of different approaches. Okay. All right. How often is um, is the U.S. affected by hurricanes in the Pacific? You know, I feel like we talk about Atlantic hurricanes a lot, and that's what we pay attention to. How often are we affected by Pacific? Um, well, so in the Pacific Ocean, you know, Hawaii can be impacted by hurricanes. Um, in general, the environment right near Hawaii is not particularly conducive. The waters tend to be a little bit cooler, and there's also tends to be kind of a lot of shear near there. So oftentimes storms will get close and people get really nervous, and then the storm just gets torn apart. But you can have very significant impacts. We saw that in 1992 with Hurricane Aniki, which um, was a very significant impact to Hawaii. Once you get into the Western Pacific, you know, um, places like Guam um, can certainly be impacted very significantly by typhoons. Um, and you can get other impacts with like American Samoa and places like that as well. But in general, you know, when you're talking about the financial damage to for U.S. interests, most of that is going to be, you know, the continental U.S. Obviously, also Puerto Rico um, yeah. um, can and the U.S. Virgin Islands can also be very significantly impacted. Obviously, Puerto Rico, most people would obviously remember Hurricane Maria in 2017, which was obviously the uh, most significant impact to Puerto Rico in a very long time. Okay. All right. So one of the things that you talked about at Elevate was how categorization is changing. So I want to talk about that some. So um, let's lay the groundwork first and talk about, can you just share how, I think everybody knows, but how hurricane, hurricanes are categorized right now? Yeah. So hurricanes have been categorized using the Saffir-Simpson scale going back to the early 1970s. And basically the reason that the way that scale came about was Herb Saffir was a wind engineer. And so he was basically doing site surveys after a hurricane and said, okay, you know, when the winds reach a certain intensity, um, here's kind of the damage that you get. And basically the, it was basically just purely wind damage. So not taking into account the rainfall, the storm surge, which is that wind driven increase in water level that is associated with the hurricane, not taking in, in, into account any of that. It's kind of basically the hurricane equivalent of with tornadoes, we have the, the, well, now it's the enhanced Fujita scale, but basically tornadoes, how much wind damage you got from those. Mm -hmm. um, and so Bob Simpson came along and added storm surge, likely storm surge impacts as well to that scale. And storm surge, while maybe marginally related to wind, is actually also very strongly correlated to the size of the hurricane. So a large in size storm is going to have more storm surge associated with it than a small storm for the same amount of wind. And so, you know, we categorize hurricanes by wind, but a lot of pushback kind of came against the Saffir-Simpson scale, especially with 2005 where Hurricane Katrina came along, was listed as it was categorized as a category three hurricane at landfall on a one to five scale. And obviously was uh, just a phenomenal storm. It caused a tremendous amount of damage, 2000 fatalities. And, you know, obviously a lot of the fatalities and a lot of the damage was due to the levee failures in Louisiana, New Orleans area, which obviously 
was somewhat the storm, also somewhat of an engineering issue. But even had the levees held up better, we saw a couple of hundred fatalities and over 25 feet of storm surge in Mississippi. Um, and so there was a lot of pushback against the Saffir Simpson scale, and they said it's not all about the category, which certainly we agree with. But what we were arguing, and we've done a couple of papers now looking at this, is instead of categorizing hurricanes by wind, we categorize them by pressure. And the reason why pressure tends to work better than wind is because you know, to get wind in a hurricane, we need to have basically the, the reason we have winds in hurricanes is because you have a difference in pressure between kind of the environment, so well away from the hurricane, and the pressure at the center of the hurricane um, in the eye. Um, so basically, the winds are there because the winds are trying to equalize that pressure difference. So if you have a a very low pressure in the eye and the winds aren't that strong, that means you have a large storm because the the difference in pressure is spread out over a large area. Whereas if you have a small hurricane, you can have a fairly high pressure for strong winds, just given that the pressure is spread out just over a very small area. So we compared Hurricane Katrina with Hurricane Charlie, which was a very impactful hurricane, but Charlie was a very small hurricane. Category four it had stronger winds than Katrina, but it was very small and had much less storm surge, even though it went into Southwest Florida, which is extremely storm surge prone. Um, and so what we said is, let's recategorize hurricanes by pressure and look and see how well that correlates with damage compared with wind. And what we found was that pressure actually worked better um, work better at predicting damage than wind. So if we argue, if you're going to use just one number to categorize hurricanes, we should use pressure instead of wind. Um, one of the big benefits being that even if pressure and wind were equal, pressure is much, much easier to measure than wind. Um, when you try to measure on land, anemometers, which are devices that measure wind, chronically fail. It's really hard to actually measure the wind that the hurricane center is defining. Once you get on land, you get frictional impacts from you know, you have grasses, you have trees, you have buildings, and the winds gets really hard to measure, whereas pressure, a barometer can be inside a building and accurately measure the pressure. And it's easy, much easier to measure with, um, when hurricanes are approaching land, we'll fly aircraft into them to measure kind of what's going on. And certainly measuring the wind is extremely important, but that's very challenging to know exactly where the strongest winds are in a hurricane, because you think of this hurricane, it's this big swath of very strong winds. We know approximately where those winds will be, but whether we actually exactly sample those, we, we honestly don't know for sure, even if you have a couple of planes in there, whereas pressure, if you fly the herp, if you have a well-defined eye, you fly a plane into a hurricane, you drop an, uh, a sonde in the center of the hurricane, you can measure the pressure extremely accurately. Um, so it's easier to measure and it correlates better with damage. So we're arguing that in the future, or we're suggesting in the future that we try to categorize hurricanes by pressure as opposed to wind. Um, it's not going to, 100% correlate with everything because obviously a lot of it too is where the storm hits. If it makes landfall in a densely populated area, it's going to cause more damage. And it doesn't necessarily account for rainfall that well. Um, rainfall has to do a lot with how fast the storm is moving. Is it interacting with any frontal systems? Is it going over topography? Because if it goes over mountainous terrain, that tends to impact, cause increases um, in rainfall. So that's a, a very long answer to your question. <laughs> it was a good answer. So if this was, if the categorization was to change, what are some storms that you've seen maybe in the last decade or so that would, the category would be different, would have been completely different in some cases, I think, if they were categorized more based on the pressure? Yeah. So obviously one of those actually be Hurricane Katrina. Um, mm -hmm. So with Hurricane Katrina, it was categorized as a three by wind. With our proposed scale, it would be categorized as a category five hurricane, which I think is more relevant to what it actually um with the damage that it caused. Another storm that was very significant in Texas was Hurricane Ike, 
which is a category two hurricane. And there was kind of, there was a lot of pushback after hurricane Ike as well, because a lot of people was like, well, it's not a major hurricane, which is category three and above. Therefore I'm not going anywhere, but it was a very large storm, had a huge storm surge associated with it and went into the ball of our peninsula. And, you know, I went, I actually went to the ball of our peninsula after hurricane Ike and you could just see like the beach was pretty much wiped clean where there were formerly a bunch of houses had a lot of storm surge. And I think a lot of people potentially may have died in Hurricane Ike due to the fact that it was not classified as a major hurricane. So with our scale, it would have been a category three or a major hurricane. Where we actually find the real impacts are though, are for storms making landfall along the East Coast. So from Georgia, especially from Georgia to Maine. Um, storms making landfall from Georgia to Maine tend to be older in that they tend, a lot of those storms form off of Africa. So they've been around a while because it takes a long time to get from Africa um, to Georgia to Maine because um, hurricanes typically move 10, 15 miles an hour. So it's a lot of several a week, 10 days, two weeks to get over there. So they tend to be fairly large. Storms tend to grow with time. So tend to be fairly large. So they tend to be kind of large, sprawly, maybe not have super strong winds associated with them, but they have very low pressures. They can have very high levels of storm surge associated with them. And so the most notable storm along the East Coast was Hurricane Sandy, which while officially Sandy was post-tropical landfall, it was a hurricane until like three or four hours before it hit the coast. Mm -hmm. And so its winds were associated with what you would get with a category one hurricane, but with pressure, it was a category four. Obviously Sandy did a lot of damage given its um, given it may landfall very close to New York City, which obviously is the largest metropolitan area in the United States, but also it did have a tremendous amount of storm surge associated with it since it had a very low pressure and it and it drove a, a huge storm surge into New Jersey. So I think it certainly warranted that high category, even had Sandy made landfall an area that was slightly less densely populated, it still would have done a tremendous amount of damage just given how much storm surge the storm had with it. So, um, and we also have several, so if you look at the state of North Carolina, um, and you use the Saffir Simpson scale, since 1900, we've only had one major hurricane hit the state of North Carolina, um, just Fran in 96 using wind. But if we use pressure, I forget the exact number, but I believe it's about 10. And I think um, people living along North Carolina would argue they've been hit by more than one major hurricane since 1900. Mm -hmm. um, the one caveat being that Hurricane Hazel effectively made landfall in the South Carolina, North Carolina border. Um, that was a category four, but either way. Um, so, but if you if you say Hazel, Cal Hazel, South Carolina, then it's just one for North Carolina. Okay. All right. All right. How can contractors tap into the resources you have? How can they find your forecasts as they're coming out? All of that. Yeah. So um, our forecasts are available online at uh, tropical colo state. So C O L O S T A T E dot edu. Um, so our forecasts usually go online at um, 8 a.m. Mountain time, so 10 a.m. Eastern time. The April forecast, I usually, well, hopefully this year I should be able to put out live from a conference. The last two years have been live virtually, but this year, looking more promising, I'll be able to do it live in person. Um, so that'll be at, the should, forecast should probably come out at, at 11 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday, April the 7th. Um, and we'll, the forecast will be on our website. I also do, I post a lot of content on Twitter. Um, during the hurricane season, not so much during the off season, but um, you can find me at, at Phil Klotzbach. So my first name and my last name. Um, unfortunately, I, I chose my Twitter handle and I didn't really think I'd be doing much on Twitter. So I probably would have done something more hurricane related, but once, <laughs> once it's there, it's there. So that's, that's my, uh, that's my Twitter handle. So kind of what I try to do is my content is a lot of it's trying to put hurricanes in, in historical context. So, you know, there's tons of websites, great resources for, you know, if you want to know what the forecast models are saying, what I try to do is 
say, okay, you know, we have a storm in the Gulf of Mexico. It's the strongest storm in the Gulf of Mexico since, you know, Hurricane Ida last year in the last 20 years, last hundred years, strongest storm on record. So I try to kind of do like, you know, with baseball, we have saber metrics where it's like, you know, first time a guy's hit a home run in the seventh inning during, you know, when there's a full moon and, you know, I don't know, the manager's eating a hot dog or something. Yeah. I try mm-hmm. to kind of put those kind of statistics online uh, for hurricanes, try to put these storms in some historical context. And then I do also put out post content related to the seasonal forecast, you know, what the water temperatures are looking like, what the latest El Nino forecasts are looking like. Perfect. Well, thank you, Phil, for all of this. You're a wealth of knowledge. I love it. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Uh, No, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to chatting with you in the future. And maybe we'll have to kind of keep this going so we can talk about how things went and future forecasts and stuff. I love it. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks, Michelle. For more restoration today, visit our website, cnrmagazine.com, or find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts.